Speaking Logically is brought to you by ETF Logic, the leading provider of analytics and portfolio analysis tools for financial advisors. No information within this should be considered trading or investment advice. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Speaking Logically. I'm Scott McKenna. And I'm Emil Perazzi. And today we are joined by Tim Maloney of Round Hill Investments. Tim, thanks for coming on. Of course. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So, Tim, for our audience that might not know much about Round Hill, why don't you tell us a little bit about your role there and how you guys uh, help out the ETF marketplace? Sure. Thanks, Scott. So uh, Roundhill is an ultimately an ETF advisor. Uh, we started the business, my partner Will and I, in, in 2018. Um, and the idea was really to focus on what we think is an underserved audience within the ETF space um, and, and to do that by focusing on a self-directed audience and reaching them uh, on the channels that they're on in a way that perhaps some of the larger peers uh, in the industry aren't looking. Um, I will say this audience skews younger, but that's more of a result of, you know, focusing on self-directive. All ages are welcome with our funds, obviously. Um, so, and then as far as what our product suite looks like, we have uh, the Nerd Esports and Digital Entertainment ETF, uh, the Bets Sports Betting and iGaming ETF, uh, and there's a third one under our umbrella um, that I think we'll get a little more into, uh, a Deep Value ETF, the Round Hill Acquirer Deep Value ETF. Um, so that's kind of a little bit about uh, Roundtail. We're, we're currently a three-person team as of yesterday with a fourth joining in a week or two um, and definitely have our sights set on continuing to create um, compelling thematic products for this kind of underserved audience. That's awesome. And, and congratulations on reaching $100 million on bets as well. That's, that's really huge, uh, especially how recently it launched. Thank you. Yeah, we're, we're very excited about what we've seen there. And I think, frankly, it's, it's an indication of the excitement of the investing public about the opportunity in sports betting and, and more broadly in iGaming as, you know, legalization comes online across the United States and, and frankly, elsewhere. So, yeah. Tim, how, so maybe you could tell me, like, walk me through kind of like how you think about both video games and sports betting online you know, with, with the backdrop of this new economy and, and the pandemic that we're living through, you know, people are at home and they need to be entertained. So, so in my, my view, like both of these sort of themes are, have, have massive tailwinds. Sure. So I'll, I'll take what I think is the easier one first, which is the, the video game fund, the esports fund. Um, to your point, people are hungry for content. Um, I think that in a way, the, the lockdown and, and everything related to COVID has actually brought people back to gaming who maybe didn't have the same time for it previously. Um, we saw right out of the gate some of the more public and, and kind of faster disseminated data points around the industry, whether it's um, the amount of people watching others play video game on streaming services uh, or the amount of people actually playing and, and registering. Um, we saw those numbers tick, tick up materially and then kind of on the back end, now that we're starting to get earnings from the companies involved in the gaming industry, we're starting to see it feed through there. So I think, um, you know, sometimes you, you get lucky, I guess, in, in times like this. And I certainly don't need to make light of what's going on in the world, but for a gaming ETF, it, it's a pretty good time to be in the market, um, for the industry. 
the sports betting side is a little bit more nuanced because obviously we didn't have sports for a little while there. Um, I think that as sports are coming back, um, the, the trend is beginning to move in the right direction again. I do think that sports are going to continue to come back. And, you know, even if we do see bumps in the road along the way, I don't think anyone's of the opinion that sports are, are going to go away in the long term. Um, and the, the, the trend that I think is more important, frankly, underneath it with, uh, as of 2018, it was no longer illegal at the federal level to do sports bet. And now the states are kind of pushing the agenda uh, across the country to legalize. I think that trend continues and continues to be um, you know, really interesting moving forward, even more so in light of potential budget issues the states are feeling after uh, as a result of COVID. So I think in both cases, there's a story to tell there. And, and we're excited about both themes, like both the short, medium and longer term. Yeah. Where, um, you know, where do we stand today with, uh, in terms of like legalization for, for online betting in terms of like number of states that have uh, passed laws allowing it? Yep. So I, I, the states typically will differentiate between sports betting and uh, iGaming more broadly. So sports betting is kind of a part of the broader umbrella of iGaming. Um, and I think there's, I'm certainly not a legal expert and I don't want to get too far into the nuance there, but um, sports betting is, is moving more quickly than the broader iGaming umbrella. Um, and there, you know, there's various stages depending on where you look. So for example, New Jersey, we have legal sports betting, New York, not yet, but the, the thesis there is that they're going to be moving it forward so that people aren't just crossing over the, the bridge or tunnel into Jersey to, to place their bets as it were. Um, so it's a long winded way of saying it really varies depending on what specifically you're looking for, but the progress is certainly being made and, and I think, um, you know, it's going to continue is, is kind of my core thesis. I definitely think a lot of people agree with you on that. I know I do. And ETF issuers as well. We've seen a bunch of thematic ETFs specifically come out around video gaming. I'm curious, how do you guys differentiate yourselves in that marketplace and in terms of your fund construction processes? Sure. So I think the key difference for our process more broadly um, against other thematic products is we don't go with a market cap weighting. We actually go with what we call kind of a tiered weight or a modified equal weight. We've also called it or, or heard it referred to. Um, and what I mean by that is when we go through and look at the basket of companies involved in the space, whether it's the space is esports and digital entertainment or sports betting and iGaming, we look to weight companies with a higher weight um, at each quarterly rebalance if they are more involved in the industry uh, in question. So what you end up with is you could have a you know four or five hundred million market cap company that's getting a five percent weight, assuming it's sufficiently liquid, um, rather than the top five holdings being you know Apple, Amazon, Google, and Nvidia. So. The idea behind it is if you're going to create a thematic product, it really should have the highest possible kind of correlation to the underlying industry. And the way you get that is by weighting companies that are more exposed to the theme um, with a higher weighting. So at the highest level, that's that's the idea um, where you end up shaking out in terms of exposure differences um, is really we don't have the same exposure to the kind of large cap tech space. Um, and historically as well, semiconductors, which are important to the gaming industry, but we think are less closely tied to 
the themes we're looking at, which is really the esports and digital entertainment, so more around the, the social component of gaming. Um, so that hopefully is a good higher level and more specific answer to your question. Yeah. Like Scott mentioned earlier, like you, um, you hit a hundred million in, uh, the, uh, the Betsy TF. How, how did you get there? Uh, you know, I'm sure a lot of, uh, smaller issuers are out there, uh, looking on enviously. Um, you know, what's your strategy for distribution? You know, how, how do you get into people's portfolios? Sure. Yeah. And, and I think we were frankly, uh, very excited. I don't want to say surprise cause it sounds like I don't know what I'm doing, but I think the, the initial reaction to the bets, the sports betting ETF was, you know, I think a, a fascinating case study, um, really at the end of the day, our thesis is that you could create a viral ETF. Um, how you do that, there's, there's kind of a number of factors, and frankly, it's hard to measure which is most important, but you need to have a theme that's interesting to a, a kind of broad audience of people. Um, I think a good ticker is important, although I probably shouldn't say that because it's hard enough to find good ones that aren't being used. Um, and then I think the most important piece where we differentiate beyond the audience we're focused on is really related to the audience we're focused on. We're not um, necess- We're not focused on the more traditional distribution model of of getting in front of financial advisors, um, and there's a few reasons for that, and we can talk a little bit more about it. But instead, where we're focused is reaching as many people as we can with compelling content about the theme that we're covering, uh, and kind of trusting them to be smart enough to figure out, hey, the guys around Hill seem to sure talk about esports and sports betting a lot. Um, I wonder if they have anything that can help us invest in that industry. We trust them to make that connection. Um, and we really, our strategy is focused around content creation. Um, and then content creation feeds earned media and earned social media, which then brings more eyeballs to our content. And then kind of that's the circle we're working with. So we're really focused on a one-to-many channel that I think is under used, uh, and hopefully stays that way because right now I think there's, there's space to do that. And, um, it does work for the right type of product. Yeah, I follow you guys on social media, and I got to say, I'm amazed at how much I can learn about the space just from looking at the content that you guys put out. I actually, while we're on the topic of social media, I wanted to talk about a specific tweet that I saw from your account that I thought was really interesting and kind of sparked my interest of having you on, and that was about the challenges as a smaller ETF issuer, specifically as it relates to ETF institutional distribution. I think you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, sure. I, uh, I I was surprised about how many feathers were ruffled, not to say that, that, was, that you were in that camp, but um, definitely got some attention from that post. Um, I, I want to start by saying it's not that we don't want advisors to buy our funds. It's just that the landscape for getting in front of them is really tilted against you know, the small issuer. And that's not to complain. It's just we're working with the opportunities that we have. Um, what I was alluding to with the the sort of model for distribution is – so we're a startup advisor, right? So we had the one ETF, now we have two, and we've actually reached some critical mass with assets. But for the first call it six months, when we did try and build out a more formal distribution channel uh, with the kind of advisory community, it's there's there's too much red tape, I think, for advisors to be able to make decisions independent of their organization. So what I mean by that is, you know, I could call 15 advisors and have a really good 
set of phone calls with all of them and they all work at a large wirehouse and they all say, this is great. Um, the content's helpful. I'd love to put uh, your funds in front of my clients. Like, let me come right back. All 15 of them will basically find that internally they're not allowed to buy it because we're not an approved issuer and the fund is not an approved fund. Um, I understand why that happens, right? There's, you know, there's a lot of choice out there. Some of these larger platforms want to, you know, make sure their advisors are investing in things they understand. I'm not really faulting anyone. I do think it's going to change because it, it doesn't necessarily work for the benefit of all parties in the ecosystem, right? Because um, limiting choice for the end client is not necessarily a good thing, right? Um, that's what I was I was kind of getting to. And there was one particular example where, you know, I won't name names, but I, I, I basically did a panel for someone and found out after that my funds weren't available there and that uh, instead of introducing them to our funds or trying to push forward the approval process or something to that effect, they actually were recommending a competitor's fund if they were interested in the space. Um, and I, I, again, I don't even really fault the people involved. I don't even think they had thought about the fact that, you know, they can't buy the Roundtail funds because of this sort of due diligence process that, you know, you can't even find out about if you're us, right? It's impossible to get the right people on the phone without bringing on consultants who happen to have their phone numbers type of thing. So anyway, long answer. I think that um, the system's really a little bit broken for smaller advisors like ourselves, but more importantly, it's not benefiting the end clients or the industry in the more medium to long-term in my opinion. So it's going to have to change. And, you know, I think we're starting to see that with the, the migration of financial advisors from wirehouses to the more independent channels. So long answer and I probably opened up more uh, jars than I closed so I'll let it go back to you guys (laughs) (laughs) no absolutely the industry is changing very quickly and it's something that we work a lot with independent advisors you know giving them the same caliber investment research and portfolio workflow tools that they would get from having you know a team of analysts at a home office I think technology definitely obviously pays a big part in being able to allow advisors to get to that next level. But I think there's definitely more to that as well. Right, Emil? Oh, I agree with that. I do, I, we do see that same, those same trends towards self-directed investors. You know, a lot of people talk about ETS as being a democratizing force, but, you know, a lot of these sort of traditional shops have, you know, gatekeepers you know, preventing ETFs from being part of the investment process, certain ETFs from being part of the investment process, and that serves as a detriment to for some advisors. So certainly taking that into account as part of your distribution strategy and, and how you get out there and how you market yourself is uh, really important. And I guess the results speak for, for themselves in your case. Thank you. Yeah, and, and I think to, to take it a step further, I wanted the previous podcast I forget which one um, you had on. I think there there was a number thrown around that 17% of an advisor's time is spent on picking investments. Yeah, Jeremy from Wilshire had quoted a report from Cerulli Associates about the use of model portfolios and how advisors who are using model portfolios spend 17% of time on uh, managing investments. 
Exactly. So uh, my personal view of what's going to happen is the role of a financial advisor is really going to move away from the investment decisions, whether that's because they're working more with models or because they're giving some level of discretion to the end client um, and then kind of managing around that. And more of their time is going to be spent on some of the other things that a financial advisor can help with, whether that's, you know, estate planning, tax to the extent they have the, the right designations and some of these other um, pieces of the ecosystem. My personal view is it's going to move more towards that. Um, and I think the most important one to us is I do think that clients want to have, or I'll just say people because I don't have any financial advisory clients. Um, I think people in general like to have, you know, sort of a, a stake in what they're invested in. Um, now, you're not going to put 100% of your investment into the nerd ETF because you like video games. But I think it can help to have a portfolio that, you know, maybe has some of the more traditional elements of a diversified portfolio with a kind of target retirement date in mind, whatever that looks like, but also has some kind of satellite positions that are more interesting and help keep the person engaged with what it is they're investing in um, and, and, frankly, who they're supporting with their investment. That's not referring to ETF advisors, but what industries they're supporting. If they're, you know, fans of the gaming industry, maybe they do want to have a little bit of exposure to a gaming ETF. And that may not fit into a model necessarily, and I understand that, but it may still fit into portfolios. And that's kind of longer term where we think there's a space in the more institutional channels for us. Awesome. So really kind of playing the long game to get into that institutional client base really unique strategy. I, I hope it works out for you guys. And I don't, from what I've heard of, I've never heard of any other ETF advisor doing that strategy. Diving a little bit deeper into the future of being an advisor, what do you think that's going to look like in terms of at the value that's added to the end investor 10 or 20 years from now? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. I, 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 for the shorter term for us, we're going to keep putting these thematic products into the market. That's the plan. We haven't filed for anything, not that I'd be able to discuss it if we had, um, which is kind of a whole separate topic we can get to on the state of our regula- regulations. But um, our plan for now is really to focus where we think we can be different and win, which is building a brand with this uh, self-directed audience, many of whom will eventually have financial advisors. And our hope is that that can open that channel up to uh, up to us if, you know, these people are starting to get advisors and they've used our products before and they like us and they follow us on Twitter and they'd like to continue kind of being a part of that. You know, that's a little bit more medium term. Um, in the longer term, honestly, I, I, I don't know what the financial advice business is going to look like. I will throw one thing out there, which is we're starting to sort of see already, I would argue, but... I think there's going to be almost financial influencers where um, whether it's specific to investments or just more broadly to building your finances, I think that that channel is going to, for lack of a better word, potentially explode Um, how that manifests and what that looks like up compared to the more traditional model of financial advisors. I honestly don't know, Um, but that's something we're looking at. and, And I think there could be an opportunity in, in the more medium term, um, to help kind of cultivate that ecosystem where you can, you know, maybe invest alongside a personality whose views resonate with you. Uh, and there's some way for compensation to be kind of passed along that channel. Again, I don't know what it looks like, but I think, uh, something to potentially think about and it ties back to the regulation stuff, which 
um, I, I'll leave here and then can jump back into if you're interested. Yeah. Oh, we, well, we absolutely are interested in all the regulation stuff. You know, the, the, the regulatory changes certainly affect the way that we do business and obviously the whole ecosystem does business. So I'm curious on what you think about the recent changes. For example, do you have any thoughts about Reg BI? Sure. So I think I'll start from kind of where we look at it most often, which is a lot of what I do, I'm, I'm regulated by the SEC and FINRA and, and someday they may hear this and that's fine. Um, but really like the rules that I get quoted when I talk about regulations are the, are from 1933, 1934 and 1940. And those are being applied to offer guidance as to how I should use Twitter to talk about an investment product. So I understand that rebuilding from scratch is hard. And I also understand that they've offered guidance over the years to you know, try and apply these rules. But the reality is like, if someone goes on Twitter and says, uh, the bets ETF doesn't own pen and that's a crime. That's just one example. I can't reply to that. I'm not allowed from a regulatory point of view to uh, reply to that. Um, that to me is, is just not in the best interest of anyone. Right. Um, and I, I, I'm a little bit taking a shortcut. Technically I could apply, but I'd have to, I'd reply, but I'd have to take the original post put a response together, submit it to our broker dealer, and they'd have to review it and file it with FINRA. So for all intents and purposes, I can't um, reply. Yeah. I think that has to change before my vision of financial influencers takes off. Um, but I do think you're starting to see a, a little bit of a difference with large firms and smaller firms, right? If you're working at a large wirehouse, most of them have rules that say you can't have a Twitter presence. So that's going to disadvantage, in my mind, people who are thinking one step ahead from being able to build their business, because there are plenty of people, I always come back to Twitter, there are plenty of financial advisors on Twitter who have really used that platform to help build their audience and have, in a lot of ways, built very important, relevant businesses, leveraging that, right? Um, that's going to continue. And if they don't change the rules to apply to what's actually happening in the world at some point, it's, I mean... You, you can only imagine where it's going to go, but it's not really doing anyone any favors, right? So, sorry if you're a listener in a compliance department, but I don't think anybody really enjoys compliance, right? And I think that's another driving force for advisors leaving larger networks. I think they're not able to build any kind of personal brand. And I think that that's very important when we're thinking about what's the future of adding value as an advisor. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, it, it's kind of related to the regulation around ratings on on uh, advisors as well. You know, mm -hmm. we live in a world where we have reviews and ratings on every you know, everything under the sun on Amazon, on different re online retail sites, but you can't rate advisors and put that online. Exactly, and I think I think a lot of it is there's just been not to get into my sort of broader views on, on rulemaking and lawmaking, but there's just so many rules at this point that it, it, it's hard to even imagine calling it in the best interest of clients, right? So if you're building an advisory business, yeah, sure. It's probably not great if you're cherry picking reviews that are maybe even not real and putting them on your website. But at the same time, if you're looking for a financial advisor, how do you find one? It's not like the most straightforward thing and everyone in the process is hamstrung from being able to actually have a real conversation about it. That's not doing anyone any good. 
Um, another example is that there's rules around having disclosures in prospectuses, right? So for our ETFs, we have prospectuses that are like 80 pages long with a 400-page supplement. I think there are probably four people who have read our prospectuses. It's myself, my business partner, and the folks over at U.S. Bank. That's not a practical tool for making disclosures to a young demographic of people who hardly get through a full tweet most of the time. It's not going to work, and it's not doing anyone any good. So again, I get a little animated when we get into this stuff, but some of it blows my mind. So on the topic of Twitter, though, while there's a lot of great stuff, there is also a lot of trolls and misinformation, right? So when that when you think about that in the terms of a regulatory landscape, is that something that we should think about the end investors have to do all the due diligence and may kind of make their own decisions based on the assumption that they are getting the correct information? Or is that something that we need to focus more on making sure that the advisor is on top of misinformation and kind of reporting it, things like that? Yeah, I mean, again, I don't know that I have all the right answers, but I think to the first question, I think you, you need to put some onus on actual individuals to make intelligent decisions. I said earlier that we like to trust our audience to make the right decisions, right? Um, I think that, you know, you, you can only protect them so much and the rules at a certain point do more harm than good. I don't have the policy answers. I'm not going to get into that, but um I think sometimes less can be more. And then the other thing is, yes, there's a lot of misinformation out there and it's hard to stop it. And again, in a way, trust your audience to kind of do their own homework, right? So when you see all the posts about how Apple and Tesla are doing a stock split, which makes your position worth five times the amount, like, first of all, that betrays common sense. Second of all, do a quick Google. You'll find plenty of resources that say that's not true. (laughs) You know, please ignore that TikTok Um, But then the other thing on the other side of this that I think is a little bit, I don't want to say inconsistent, but, you know, there are products out there that, in my opinion, are in no one's best interest, and they still got signed off on um, by the SEC. So there's a whole class of products, and I don't want to point any fingers, so I won't get into the details unless you guys think we should, but there's a whole class of products that the intended use case is to never hold them overnight. Yet ETFs, businesses that make ETFs, cannot make any money unless people hold them overnight. So these products got approved, and the only way that the the business model works is if people hold them overnight, which is not the intended use case. So sure, in the perspective, there's a disclosure that says these are not intended to be held for long periods of time for the following reason. I don't think anyone reads that. Yeah, uh, that's actually a topic that's... uh that I feel quite strongly about as well, uh, you know, with the leverage products that I think you're referring to is mm-hmm. you know, most people are surprised, you know, especially when I go on, on social media and read about, you know, how, how people are investing and sort of there's the basic questions like, you know, the market's up 10% this in, in two weeks, but why is my, you know, double leverage ETF only up 15%? Well, it's exactly what you're saying. And uh, mm-hmm. unfortunately, these products are labeled under the ETF umbrella. Uh, they really should be, I think they should be called trading tools. You know, the, there should be another 
class of products that are not for investment purposes or for, you know, maybe tactical or, you know, just like options, you have different levels of, of uh, permissioning, right? Um, right. And I, and I think it's, for me, it's like, just, just make rules that are consistent, right? Don't allow people to buy three X leverage short ETFs, but then tell that same person that they're not sophisticated enough, even though they are a CFA charter holder to invest in a private company because they're not accredited. Like there's a, there's a serious disconnect. And I, I sort of get the feeling that the only ones who aren't catching it are the actual kind of lawmakers, not to be overly critical. And I think some of them are actually doing really good things. Um, Hester Pierce in particular, I'm a big fan of, but it's just not consistent. And it doesn't it, like optically from the outside. It's like, how did these rules come to be? <laughs> yeah. So on your last point, we, we saw that last week, the, the rules around accredited investors were uh, changed after, I guess, a couple decades. And what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think having a rule saying um, individuals can't invest in private companies is, is a little bit of a stretch more broadly. And that's probably at the edge case of what people would say about this. But I think, too, I don't think they made enough of a change, right? They basically said if you have a series, what was it, 763 and one of the other ones, um, you can invest. Like, how many new people is that really bringing into the fold? Because to have those exams or those licenses, with the exception of one, I think, I was recently told, you have to work for a broker-dealer. So if you're already working for a broker-dealer, like, how many more people are now able to access it? And why wasn't something like the CFA included? Like, the, the curriculum you go through to, you know, patting myself on the back a little bit, but to become a CFA charter holder, it's pretty robust. And to say that those people are not, you know, knowledgeable enough about the risks associated with investing in private companies to include them, it's like, I don't know, I read the comments, I don't know how that, that couldn't have been included. So again, it's just, it's a lack of consistency. Yeah, I'm not really sure. You, you probably know more than me. Uh, but I wanted to go back to a point you made before about the investing influencers. Obviously, there's one in particular that has been taking over the headlines recently, even for some of the really old school investing guys, right? And that's like Dave Portnoy and the whole Barstool scene. You know, they pivoted pretty quickly when sports went out with COVID, right? And now they're all about day trading and I'm curious your thoughts. Is that a net positive for the investing community? Or is it exposing people who need better financial literacy to get into the markets before they're really ready? Yeah, it's a great question. And and again, this gets into where the, the exact right answer is, you know, may escape me. Um, I will say on, on the Barstool side, regardless of how you feel about his move into stock trading, I mean, you're looking at a, from a business point of view for them, it makes a ton of sense, right? They all of a sudden had no sports. Most of their content engine gets shut down. And I can see why they made that decision as to whether or not what he's saying is responsible and doing, you know, a net good or bad to the overall community. Um, I don't know that I want to take a strong stand there, but I will say this. I think a lot of the financial services industry rhetoric to younger investors is get started investing, but do so with a professional financial advisor. Mm -hmm. Unpopular opinion, but that's not really a great 
economic decision at certain levels of wealth, right? Um, so basically, the official party line from the industry is, you know, wait till you have an advisor to help you make decisions. So as a result, you get a lot of people who don't think at all about investing, and then they get to the stage where they've accrued enough wealth that they speak to an advisor. They've got like 10 years worth of, you know, not investing in there, call it. More importantly, they haven't had any time to sort of make mistakes with less at risk, right? So net-net, yeah, I think people need to be introduced to investing earlier. They need to get involved, put a little bit of money in, and learn. You know, the, the best way to learn not to use a 3x levered ETF is to buy one in college and hold it for three months and be like, okay, that wasn't great, was it? <laughs> um, so I, I think like net-net, more people getting involved with investing at a younger age is going to be better for them because they'll learn as they go and they will reach a point where they'll probably need professional help, right? But they can at least become, you know, self-sufficient enough to that point that they're asking the right questions when that happens, right? Um, so, and look, it ties in a little bit with what we're doing. We want to introduce people to ETFs in a way that they, you know, get excited about uh, where I don't think that works so much if you're pitching them on, you know, a, a broad market ETF. It's, it's not the same kind of engagement. Um, so anyway, it's a long answer. Uh, I think that it's important to get people paying attention to investing more, more broadly at a younger age, because it's an important skill and you don't have to be the best at it to be better than you otherwise would be. I wanted to touch base on your third fund. Uh, <laughs> I guess uh, your, the deep value ETF uh, has an interesting history and, you know, value has been beaten down, especially this year with everyone's kind of, kind of chasing technology and uh, high growth stocks. But uh, there's another theme out there, which is, uh, you know, looking for yield or you know, people are uh, trying to figure out how to, you know, keep the keep income generation high in their portfolios. And just looking at deep on our site, we see that it's kind of yielding around 7% or more. Um, you know, how, how do you view that ETF? How do you view the value versus uh, growth debate right now? Yeah, so the value versus growth debate is a, is a dangerous minefield um, that I don't want to try and time the market and make any crazy predictions here. Um, I think there's value for our audience to be exposed to different investment topics, and that's part of the reason that we took on the Deep Value ETF um, this year, and we're actually working with Toby Carlisle, who, who's kind of an expert in the space, for lack of a better way to put it, to make sure that we have a product that's consistent with its objectives. Objectives, excuse me. Um, but you know, part of the thesis here was let's take a different type of investment strategy that your average kind of gamer or sports betting fan that owns one of our other funds might not be as naturally inclined to, and see if we can put it in front of them and educate them on the opportunity, and maybe some of them will will buy it, right? Because having a a portfolio with balanced exposure is, is a good thing to learn about, right? Um, you're running a little higher risk, whether you know it or not, if all you own is growth stocks. And it might work for a little while, but there may also be a period, and again, I'm not going to try and time the market here, where it doesn't work. Um, and over the longer term, at least knowing those other options are out there is important. Um, my personal view within deep value is that 
I, I mean, at some point it should reverse in my mind to an extent. I don't know when that will be, but you know, the, the, the thesis behind value investing does make sense over a long enough window. Um, and, you know, being able to then offer that to our audience is, you know, it's another choice and it's another kind of piece in the, the process of them learning more about investing. Awesome. Well, we're coming up on our time here. Tim, was there anything else you wanted to add before we close out the podcast? No, I think this covered a lot of stuff. Um, I could probably uh, hang up and talk about my issues with the, the global regulatory environment for hours, but I don't think we want to bore anyone. Um, and who knew I would get excited about that? I had no idea when I started an ETF business that I was going to become a regulatory nerd, but what can you do? Um, no, this has been great. Um, I think it's, it's always fun to talk about these things. I love what you guys are working on and I'm glad you asked me to be on. And, um, you know, we're, we're going to keep churning out products over here at Round Hill over time. And hopefully they can be of value to the, uh, the audience you have, um, you know, assuming they're turned on wherever those advisors are. Excellent. Well, again, Tim, thank you so much for joining us. For those who are interested in the Roundhill products, you can learn more by following Tim or Roundhill on LinkedIn or Twitter or going to roundhillinvestments.com. If you're interested in learning more about what we're up to with our Logically platform, you can go to Logically, spelled a little funny, it's spelled L-O-G-I-C-L-Y dot finance. Uh, you'll find all the information about our product there, as well as a free trial code uh, to try it out for yourself. Thanks, you guys, again, for listening to Speaking Logically. have a lot more great episodes coming up. We are now rolling it out Every single week, an episode, we're filming on Tuesday, releasing them on Thursday on a regular schedule. I hope you guys are ready for even more awesome content.